Hello, everyone. I'm JP Kuhlwein. I'm the executive vice president at Frederic Fekai. It's a luxury hair care brand here in New York City. I'm also the co-author of a book called Rethinking Prestige Branding, and you are listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert, we will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 47 of IP Fridays. Today, our interview guest is JP Kühlwein, Executive Vice President of Frederic Fikai in New York and co-author of Rethinking Prestige Branding. Ken will tell us uh, how trademarks play together with hashtags. And before all that, I want to tell you that I'm very proud to have now 100 subscribers to my newly started YouTube channel. If you want to have a peek, you can go to www.ipfridays.com slash YouTube, ipfridays.com slash YouTube. I have tons of videos there already. Every week there is a new video. And currently I have videos on how to search for similar earlier trademarks, how to monitor your competition and many, many more videos. So Ken, tell us more about hashtags and trademarks. Rolf, hashtags are hot. Hot for marketers and hot for trademark lawyers. Marketing campaigns around the world are increasingly adding what was once the lonely pound or number sign, now transformed into hashtag plus catchy slogans, phrases, and memorable trademarks. You see them on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Pinterest. From iPhone screens to movie screen trailers, you can count on seeing hashtags more than once a day. As a result, practitioners need to be mindful of the need for clearance and to be familiar with the rules for registration depending upon the particular country. So what is a hashtag? It is the hash character or pound character or number character found on your keyboard or smartphone. Hashtags enable internet users to find things faster and aid in the cataloging of the vast amounts of materials that are posted daily on the internet worldwide. Most popular social media platforms support hashtags, and they are now a large part of the experience when online. The hashtag is placed immediately to the left of the word or phrase forming things like hashtag joy delivered or hashtag say love. Those are both registered trademarks in the United States for services covering food delivery and charitable fundraising services respectively. While these hashtags are federally registered, companies may find it difficult at times to register their hashtags with a local patent and trademark office. Should you apply with a merely descriptive or generic hashtag, you can count on receiving some sort of registration refusal. Case in point, hashtag skater in connection with skateboarding equipment. According to the Trademark Manual of Examining Procedure Section 1202.18, Quote, if a mark consists of the hash symbol or the term hashtag combined with wording that is merely descriptive or generic for the goods or services, the entire mark must be refused. 
as merely descriptive or generic. That's a helpful section for practitioners to remember and review. There is practical guidance published by the USPTO on what is and what is not registrable. Now, how a hashtag is used on submitted specimens may also play a role in whether a rejection is issued. Compare use of a hashtag buried in text versus prominent use in an advertisement or web page. You'll want to be in the latter camp in order to improve the likelihood of receiving a registration. One final thing to consider is that hashtags may just be temporary, a short-lived marketing campaign, here today but shelf tomorrow. Before investing in registrations, assess how long the hashtag will be in use and whether it makes sense to procure exclusive registration. For IP Fridays, I'm Ken Suzanne. Thank you, Ken. And now over to the interview with JP Kühlwein. I'm very excited to be joined by JP Kühlwein today. If you don't know who JP is, he is currently serving as the Executive Vice President of Frederick Fekai, a prestige hair care brand and also co-author of the book Rethinking Prestige Branding. He is a recognized strategy expert and global brand builder and has 20 plus years track record of translating consumer and branding insights into transformational propositions that win the market. Thank you for being on the show, JP. I'm delighted to be there. So um, you are the expert for luxury and prestige brands. Uh, why do some prestige or luxury brands have more success than others? And what is the difference between a luxury brand and a prestige brand? Very good question that, get, uh, that gets asked a lot. Um, let me start with what's the difference between luxury, prestige, and so on and so on. It's really in the eye of the beholder, okay? The majority of people think about luxury brands when they think about precious, expensive materials, history, provenance, as the French say, and a lot of it has to do with coming from France and then a little bit from Italy and so on as well. Um, but really, it's in the eye of the beholder. What we used as definition for talking about prestige brands was brands that are able to demand um, a much higher price versus the market average in a particular category, whether that is cars, water, milk, or jewelry. Um, and we're interested in those brands not because of the price. The price to us is just a proof that they are strong brands. But we're interested in these brands because obviously they succeed in taking um, people's minds beyond just the material, beyond just their functional utilitarian value and make people willing to pay a premium for them. So... You know, the definition is one thing. What we're really interesting, uh, interested in is the branding part. So um, why do some brands, um, prestige brands that can, uh, let's say, ask for a markup in the price, uh, why, do, why are some of these brands more successful than others? Um, what are the key factors? What do you think? Yeah, what we find is that Prestige brands with a sustained track record of success as measured in their pricing premium, as measured in continued growth, um, are the ones that are able to, quote unquote, keep up with times and not grow stale and old 
or on the other end of the spectrum that are not getting, quote unquote, too popular, diluted and eventually lose their pricing power and the esteem that consumers have with them. Um, so uh, an example we love because it's often considered kind of the, 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 the queen or king of prestige brands is Hermès, Hermès de Paris. Um, everyone knows the Birkin bag. It's an iconic um, product. It's ever fresh. People have been desiring it for decades. Um, and it always presents itself also in new ways, including the entire brand. In fact, Hermès has just borne a petit ash, little age as it's called, which is um, the brainchild of one of the uh, Dumas family uh, members, uh, Pascal Moussard, and literally is recycled materials or repurposed, reimagined as they call it, materials from the manufacturing of the classic Hermes products, whether it's leather, porcelain, silk or other, and reimagined into children's toys in particular and furniture and tea sets and jewelry. So it is a high-end way of recycling, which is very topical. Recycling, sustainability, protecting the earth is a very modern, very topical subject, particularly in Europe and developed countries. But Hermes has found a way to interpret it within their framework of craftsmanship, um, inspiration and creative expression. So those are the kind of luxury brands um, that are able to keep themselves young and keep the esteem up. Mm, okay. Um, in your book, you are talking about the prestige marketing model. Can you explain? Yeah, so we, we talk about seven principles uh, in the book. Um, I can go through those very quickly. We divide them in kind of three key directions. One is um, the need for mission and myth. Um, the other one is to balance longing and belonging. And the third direction um, is called the need for truth. We call it the need for truth. What does it mean? Mission and myth is all about consumers nowadays that can afford it and kind of indulge in a category, want to buy more than, quote unquote, stuff, a thing, okay? So if you buy a car and you like cars, or you buy wine, or you buy furniture, or even you buy mineral water, and you are a foodie, a gourmet, you want this product to mean more than being a shoe or a car. So when I buy a Tesla, I'm buying into a vision of a future where cars do not pollute the earth anymore. When I buy a Ben and Jerry's ice cream, I might be buying a piece of repairing society. Um, if I'm buying uh, Tom's Shoes, and people in the US will in particular be familiar with that brand, you're buying you know, a pair of shoes also for school children to be able to go to school because they're too poor to afford a pair of shoes. So these marketers are able to imbue meaning into the material and into their brand and have a mission that people sign up for. So people are able to vote with their credit card versus just, quote unquote, consume. 
But you need to strike a balance, and that's the second direction we have, a, a, a balance between people wanting to belong and wanting to be part of that movement, wanting to help Patagonia protect the environment, for example, but at the same time, to remain a prestige brand and to remain desired, you also need to introduce an element of longing, meaning trying to be part of it. Now, in the past, uh, and not quite reaching it, obviously. Now, in the past, um, that was based on, you know, I'm made of gold and I cost 200,000 euros and you, you won't be able to afford me. And that kind of you know, separated the haves from the have-nots. But that's very, quote-unquote, old-fashioned and actually frowned upon, particularly after the economic crisis. Even high-net-worth individuals feel uncomfortable nowadays to sport that golden watch and go into their Ferraris with their Xenia, you know, um, outfit and kind of show off their wealth. So nowadays... Building up the longing can be more sophisticated. It can be about knowledge. It can be about knowing things. It can be about um, replicating and knowing about the rituals of a brand. It can be about having access, even on the internet, okay? Think of net porte having EIPs, extremely important people, having access when others don't have access. So a little bit more sophisticated and these modern prestige and premium brands are able to balance the longing and the feeling of belonging and then the final direction we call the need for truth um, others call it authenticity transparency corporate social responsibility um, it goes beyond the typical, quote-unquote, greenwashing. You know, I, I don't know, you're oil manufacturer and you say, I plant trees, or you are a coffee grower and you say, I pay fair wages. It usually goes all the way to opening up the doors, showing how you manufacture, let people even participate in some of the strategic choices, um, um, and, and being otherwise very authentic in what you do, including the organization, quote-unquote, living the dream and the mission um, that you uh, portray and that you communicate to your consumers. So that would be, again, for example, at Patagonia, where if you go to the Patagonia headquarters, these people truly live outdoor adventure, truly respect the environment, um, you know, work on wetsuits that are made of algae and other natural materials and are biodegradable or volunteer in nonprofit organization for, you know, building back dams and, and building back rivers and so on. So they're truly creating a truth and authenticity behind the brand. Mm, okay. Um, I mean, that's a completely new direction where the brands are going into in the last couple of years, I guess. Um, what I read in the typical textbooks is very much different. <laughs> yes. So, yes. And, and, that, and that is a very difficult thing for mass marketers to emulate. We see a lot of industries, um, for example, beers in the US at least, you know, um, You have the big kids on the block. They're called, um, you know, Budweiser and Miller Lite. And for the past 10 years, you had this enormous emergence of what is called the craft beers. 
Those would be the little Brooklyn lagers, you know, IPAs, Indian pale ales, and so on, crafted beers. People are so attracted to these crafted beers because they express everything I was talking about earlier, a founder's vision, you know, a true authentic process where people think like, uh, you know, feel they, they know or at least know of the person who makes this beer with honesty, trying to um, use this, you know, authentic materials, sourced materials like organic materials and so on versus the mass marketed industrial beer. And so these mass manufacturers and mass marketers are struggling in defending their turf against these little brands that are not huge, but they are nagging away at their territory. And they can become very big. If you think of Red Bull, uh, that has defined themselves as a premium energy drink, something that didn't exist. By now, it's a multi-billion dollar brand. Cirque du Soleil, which is not really a circus. There are no clowns there that has reinvented the circus at very high ticket prices compared to the classic Barnum and other circuses is a billion dollar brand by now. And so is Nespresso and so on and so on. Mm, right. Um, there is another interesting concept in your book. Um, you call it the squeeze in the middle. Um, first of all, probably you can just leave, um, tell us what that is, what you mean by that. And also directly a question, um, is that a problem for prestige brands and how do they deal with that? Um, Yes. <laughs> so it, it, it can become a problem. What is it? Um, particularly the economic crisis time uh, around 2008, 2009, uh, saw a lot of categories that um, had a, a broad range of price tiering um, polarize, where brands at the top of the price and quality and image range continued to grow or at least were kind of stable and then brands at the bottom often private label um, also grew but mid-tier brands mass tige brands as some of them are sometimes called really struggled and we think it is because when you are in a category and you are under financial stress or generally under emotional psych psychological stress and you need to make a purchase decision or you're going to, you know, you're, you're deciding for a product, um, you either consciously but often subconsciously decide that you care about this product category. Let's say... I can be into cars and like cars, in which case I really care about the oil I fill into my car. And then I say, you know what? These are tough economic car times. I want to protect my car. My car is kind of my little luxury. I don't have a big house. I don't have anything else. I just have my BMW or whatever it is. And so you really think and go get into motor oils. And you will go for a synthetic, branded, maybe recommended by others, etc. motor oil. If you don't care about cars, you hardly use it or you couldn't be bothered less and maybe even somebody else is actually servicing it. 
in a tough economic times, if somebody asks you, you might go for the cheapest one. And that applies across categories. And so what happened is, if you are a coffee that is somewhere in between, you're not cheap, but you also have nothing particular to yourself, then you might literally be squeezed in the middle where either people say, you know, coffee for me is a commodity. I drink a cup. I don't even like it much. It's just to wake me up. Or people say, coffee is my pride. I consider myself as a gourmet and I love to offer amazing, surprising varieties to my guests, in which case you stay at the top end and the same applies for teas and so on. So when you looked at Nespresso or Mariage Frere, which is a premium tea brand, um, or any of these, they were doing okay. In fact, they recovered quite quickly in that um, uh, uh, in that economic crisis. Whereas, kind of the middle of the road supermarket coffees were doing um, not that well. In fact, many of these categories continued to struggle in the middle. So that is being squeezed in the middle. And if you were a um, prestige brand that succumbed to the temptation of having a lot of what is called in the fashion trade a diffusion line or a bridging line, i.e. you were Starbucks and then you started to price down and also get in the supermarket. You know, you were um, uh, 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 Burberry's and you ended up manufacturing, you know, everything with your logo on it. Or you were Hilfiger and you printed those same Hilfiger big logo t-shirts at every price point. When that moment hit, you were stuck in the middle because, yeah, a Hilfiger t-shirt costs maybe 29, 49 euros compared to a regular t-shirt at 19 euros. But people couldn't care enough anymore about you. And you were so broadly distributed that they said, either I get a really nice sweater or t-shirt that I really care about and that will be a heirloom and, I, you know, I will cherish and maybe they go even all the way to a Brunello Cuccinelli at a couple of hundred or even thousand euros. Or they say, the T-shirt's a T-shirt. Let, let me buy Fruit of the Loom, you know, for 19 euros. And you were squeezed in the middle. Right. Okay. So some learned how to, do, how to deal with it and some didn't. <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, for example... Um, LVMH, a, a lot of big luxury brands right now are realizing this trend and you even see them cut back. Um, LVMH is closing stores. LVMH is cutting back their product lines. Um, Burberry is a case study of buying back their licenses and stopping production of things like, you know, dog um, uh, uh, leashes and, uh, you know, baseball hats and so on. All of this in an effort to actually scale back this diffusion. There's a famous word by uh, the Dumas family, again, uh, uh, Hermes, um, actually uh, their first non-family CEO, Thomas, and he, uh, Thomas, he says, um, whenever something gets too popular at Hermes, we stop producing it. And that is in the spirit of keeping the image and the price point up. Mm, right. Um, you, as we already said a couple of times, you just published the book, uh, Rethinking Prestige Branding, Secrets of the Uber Brands. Um, why did you write that book? 
<laughs> so actually, since we're both German, for once we can pronounce it Überbrands, which usually we don't, which usually we don't, uh, which really means, as you know, Uber is above and beyond. Um, and, 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 and there's a whole philosophy, obviously, behind that. We, we won't go into that deep. Uh, please read the book for that. But the inspiration came from that. Um, a good buddy of mine, Wolfgang Schaefer, Wolf Schaefer, um, and I have been working together for a decade or so, or had been at that point. Um, and Wolf works a lot with prestige brands, and I was gamble how to get into the prestige game and literally one evening we're at the bar and uh, we're having a drink after a long day of discussions and we ju it just struck us um, that you know people now go for vodkas like Grey Goose and mix them with Red Bull and it all gets a special name and they're paying a relative fortune for it where vodka was supposed to be the cheap liquor that has no taste um, and Red Bull came out of nowhere. And we said, you know, how does it happen? A, how does it happen that something that is seemingly a commodity one day seems to be transformed into something precious. And nowadays, of course, there's Grey Goose and Belvedere and there's all these gourmet vodkas you can pay hundreds of dollars for. Um, and, and how come people actually buy into it? Um, and so that started a journey of looking at what are the principles, uh, common underlying principles of all of these brands that people seem to value way beyond the commodity market price. We almost made it a game at the beginning um, um, to go as broad as possible in looking for brands that would be valued beyond their commodity value. Uh, and so we looked for water and we looked for coal and we looked for earth and we looked for salt and so on, typical commodities that actually sell at very low prices in the market, to see if these categories can be transformed as well. And sure enough, if you want, you can buy a Fleur de Sel de la Guerande with the GPS location of the person who uh, collected it in front of Mont Saint-Michel and they sign off on it and pay an absolute fortune for a few grains of salt. And so we saw that the principles of modern prestige branding can apply to any kind of product or service. Very, very interesting. Uh, it's probably very much worth uh, reading your book. <laughs> and and we, we, we really try to make it very practical and very illustrative, both in uh, words and in photography. And so I think we probably talk about a good hundred brands in the book and we have probably about 20 in-depth case studies, you know, ranging from Nespresso coffee to Freitag uh, recycled bags that are made of truck tarp. So it should be interesting for people working across categories. Yes. So um, that has been a very interesting interview. Um, if people want to know more about you, where can they reach you? In many ways, if, if they want to ask questions or, um, you know, uh, need consultations, they can reach us at, uh, can reach me at JP, that's two letters, JP at uberbrands.com. Uberbrands is spelled 
U-E-B-E-R brands, Uber with a U-E. Or they can look up our blog on WordPress. It's called, again, Uber Brands. Um, and you can see a lot of current articles and films and podcasts as well that we post there on the subject. Yeah, thank you very much for being on the show. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.